The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. I'm James Thompson, Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And I'm Olivia Long, Managing Director of SMSF at Prime Financial Group and Eureka Reports SMSF Coach. And, and we, are we are The Money, the Money Cafe. Cafe. <laughs> Fantastic. Olivia, it's very exciting to have you. Uh, obviously, I'm deputising here for Alan Cole, who's off on some well-earned leave. Yes. Um, but we're, we're thrilled to have Olivia along, who, uh, of, of course... Um, readers will be familiar and, and uh, with, with Olivia's work at Eureka Report and listeners to this podcast will be familiar too because every time uh, Alan has a tricky super question, he praises Olivia for being able to come to his rescue. So it's great to have you on board, Olivia. Tell us a little bit about Prime Financial Group and what you do there and perhaps, perhaps some of the, the, the common questions that people come to you with. Absolutely. So look, Prime Financial Group is a wealth advisory firm. We specialise in providing retirement planning, strategic advice and investment advice and management. But myself, I'm an SMSF veteran. I've been in the industry for nearly 20 years. I'm passionate about all things SMSF and run an SMSF admin accounting and tax service that starts from 2240. So we help people make running their SMSF as easy as possible. And and tell me, Liv, has it got easier over the over the journey um, for, to, to, for, for people to, 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 to get into an SMSF or is it harder and, and, and it still needs you know a lot of careful thought and, and, and perhaps even more planning and compliance than in the past. Look it has got easier. It's certainly been the set, setup's been simplified and new funds can be set up sort of anywhere from three to five days these days. Uh, The compliance costs are becoming cheaper and that's predominantly due to electronic data feeds and the availability of data online. Um, So all in all, I've seen, from what I've seen, running an SMSF is easier, setting one up um, and the compliance burden is becoming less and less onerous by working with specialists that do it day in, day out. Yeah. Okay. And, and 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 for those thinking of it, I mean, what what's the caveat there? What what are you? What's the level of commitment you need to be prepared for before before you go in? Look, if you're confident in making investment decisions, or if you're confident and happy to appoint an investment advisor to do that for you, uh, an SMSF may be suitable to you. But really, it comes down to the number one reason that people always have, and people are currently still establishing self-managed super funds, is control. And it's having that direct control over um, what the fund is doing and the transparency um, that comes with running a fund as well. So, look... um, Recently, uh, one of my favourite re- reports that's released every year is the Class Benchmark Report. Hmm. And this year's report was titled A Time for Growth and Trends Shaping SMSF. So I love reading the stats and the trends that are happening in, in the SMSF industry. So in recent years, despite the COVID-19 distractions, uh, interestingly, the sector still grew by 4.7%, which brings the total number of funds in Australia now to about 605,000, which is the highest it's been yet. But what's particularly interesting is the rise of the millennials in the self-managed super area. 
So in the 2022 financial year, a third of the funds established were by people aged 35 to 44. Wow. So. Yeah, and the average age of a member has decreased from 51 to 46. Wow, that, that's that's amazing. Liv, do, do you think, you know, we, we saw a big jump in share trading and, and younger people getting into share trading over COVID. Yes. D- does this feed into the SMS? Like is this the next step for, for people who've dipped their toe in the water and thought, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in taking this a bit further? Yeah, absolutely. And look, people had time. Time was the gift that that the lockdowns gave us. And with time, people were educating themselves. And because, you know, information is so readily available, people are literally uh, wanting to take that control. And, you know, the, the younger generation are confident investors. And because they've got that information at their fingertips, they're well-educated, they're well-informed, and they're happy to set up an SMSF so that they can take that control. Yeah, uh, w- yeah. which is a very different landscape, I have to say, to where we were 10 years ago hmm. uh, when people were typically waiting until they were closer to retirement before establishing a fund and sort of moving across. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing what a difference 10 years can make. So so previously people were, you know, putting their fat funds in a, in a quote-unquote ordinary super fund, a, a, a normal APRA fund, and then thinking okay, I'm getting close to retirement, I've got a bit more time on my hands, that's when I want to go take a bit more control and go the SMSF uh, path. But it, it feels like that's changing a bit. Yeah, well, it, I think it used to be predominantly led by balances. You know, there's always been this feeling yeah. that you need to have a certain amount of money before an SMSF is viable. And, you know, back in the day, ASIC would cite, you know, $500,000 based on running costs of $13,500. Whereas today, you know, if you're managing it yourself, you can set up and run an SMSF with anywhere from, you know, $1,500 upwards in terms of running costs. So it's making them more viable for more people if, if you're purely looking at that cost perspective. But um, yeah. and interestingly, in the number of SMSFs that were established from 21 to 2022, the percentage of them that had $50,000 or less as a starting balance actually doubled from 11.8% to 31.9% or wow. 09%. So we're looking at people with less than 50000 setting up SMSFs probably on, you know, working with those administrators who do the free setup, first year free, whatever it is to try and get that cost um you know, that cost down in the first year, but they're setting them up because they believe that they can invest and do better than the other superannuation vehicles. Yeah. Liv, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, taking your point there that the the old advice about 500K as a minimum might be a bit outdated, 50K sounds like a, a, a fairly low bar to me. Uh, when you're advising people, do you have a round ball where you go, figure where you say, you know, this is where I, where I'd be thinking about. This is the amount I'd think you'd need to kick things off. Yeah, look, I'll actually quote the SMSF Association here because they recently did a study of about half of the SMSFs um, in Australia, and what they found is that SMSFs are actually viable from around two hundred thousand dollars, not five hundred thousand, yeah. and typically from two hundred thousand dollars upwards, SMSFs typically outperform the other super fund vehicles. Yeah, so that's okay. you know that's a specialist industry wide um, some some research that they've shared. So I agree. I think fifty thousand dollars personally is a bit low, 
But what we've seen in recent years is a boom in people establishing super funds to invest in cryptocurrency, which is something mm. I often talk about. And, you know, we've got this whole generation of people that understand how to trade and make money uh, trading crypto who have made a lot of money and I'm talking to them. And so now they want to do it with their super. So, you know, it's what's what's the motivation behind starting the fund? I think it's just purely the fact that they think they can outperform. And, you know, quite a few of them are. So it's interesting also yeah. that in 2021, 4% of the SMSF assets that year were comprised of cryptocurrency. And I think that's a figure that's going to continue to increase, in my opinion. Yes, although the uh the value, the value of most cryptocurrencies is decreasing. So there's a, the, the, there's a little bit of there's a there's a uh, a handicap there that the um, that the crypto guys are going to have to get across. Just, just to come back to this this point, live about females leading the charge. I mean, what's what's happening here? I mean, is this is this an overdue change? I mean, is it sort of the demographics catching up, or or is this a a, a bigger shift. Yeah, look, I think it's, it's a bigger shift. But so firstly, females are leading the charge because they are consistently making more non-concessional contributions than males. Now, that makes sense in light of balanced equalisation strategies that we're seeing a lot of people adopt now that there's that $1.7 million cap on your total super balance. But we're seeing also 15% uh, more my, females than males are, are utilising the downsizer contributions, which is interesting because you'd think if, it, you know, people utilising that downsizer contribution, both the, the male and female would be making them. Uh, and, and the class report notes that this trend reinforces what we're seeing, you know, in society with women taking more ownership when it comes to household finance, finances and having a more active view of financial independence, uh, which I think is great. Um, yeah. But the, the truth is that female balances have also grown faster than male balances since 2017, outperforming them by 4%. Uh, so I think on all fronts, you know, women are just becoming more involved with their finances, which I think is, you know, awesome. This is a, a, a question without notice, Liv, but the, the, when you think about the, the female and male clients you see, do, do, do females bring a different perspective to the way they operate an SMSF? Is there anything you'd – I know I'm asking you for sweeping generalisations here, but are, are they more patient? Are they – do they do, do more research to make better decisions, anything like that? I would say the, I'm seeing the females do more research. Um, yeah. So they're, they're better at research, but they're also better at the administration. So okay. lots of men like making decisions, but they don't like handling the paperwork and responding to their accountants that, you know, asking – asking them to provide all the evidence at the end of the year, whereas women are generally more organised, if I could make a very generalised statement. <laughs> no, that's, that's good. Well, uh, and, and it's given the, uh, the outperformance there, it's, um, it's paying off. So there's lessons for everyone, I think, in that. Um, <clears throat> we're on the, uh, the, the, the cusp of or, or we've just ticked over the, the new financial year a few months ago and there were some big changes there. Um, tell us a little bit about... What's going on here with with over sure. over sixty sevens? Yeah. So look, the first thing is that um, previously, if you were aged over sixty seven and you wanted to make voluntary super contributions, you had to meet a work test or get a work test exemption. So under the new rules, anyone under the age of seventy five can actually make or receive. 
personal and salary sacrifice contributions without needing to meet that work test anymore, which means if you're not working yep. and, and, yeah, and you've got money outside of super, you're now able to get that into the superannuation environment. Gotcha. Right. Okay. So previously you had to prove that you were working to do that. Correct, correct. And I think it's great because for a few reasons, it simplifies the rules for older Australians. Uh, it, it allows them greater flexibility and in particular enables a very popular strategy we're seeing at present, which I just mentioned, is to balance out um, or equalise those balances b- between a husband and wife as it allows one member to draw you know, a portion down out of their member account and yep. then recontribute it back to their spouse's account. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Okay. Now we should mention the markets a, a little bit because it's. Uh, um, I know super is a long term game, but I did see some super return numbers uh, for August um, at the start of this week, which showed you know we had a, a nice bounce on equity markets in um, in in July and and <coughs> the end of June, and that helped uh, de- deliver uh, um, some reasonable gains. I think the balance fund was up about two percent in August. <coughs> Mm-hmm. But of course, we've had a pretty rocky week uh, this week with with US inflation numbers that came out yesterday morning Australian time and really shocked the world. Uh, everybody had thought that inflation might be on its way to peaking, and so interest rates might be on their way to peaking. But what we uh, learnt from the US inflation numbers was that that US economy is just not cooling as the Federal Reserve hoped. And inflation's looking pretty sticky and, and, and higher for longer. And uh, you would have seen on Wednesday, uh, Tuesday night, we saw Wall Street down about 4%. And then uh, the ASX got whacked on Wednesday down about just over 2.5%. Liv, uh, I don't know what you make in some of these movements. And, and obviously, you know, you could get could go crazy in an SMSF worrying about what, what happens on any particular day. D- do you tend to ignore the screens or, uh, you know, is it a bit like the solar eclipse, you can't quite look away? No, it's it's SMSF's great because I get to ignore the screens. <laughs> it's, all, it's all about investing for the long t- longer term for many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, uh, I, I don't get to ignore the screen, so I um, I, I think it's been a pretty wild week and I, I think I'd be telling people just to be wary of a fair bit of volatility to come here. There's obviously, you know, a lot of uncertainty in the world at the moment with, um, you know, geopolitical issues, the war in Ukraine and what's happening in China, but I, I, I think we're far from having a settled picture on inflation and, and I think the next month or so particularly could be pretty volatile as, as the world works through uh, some of these big picture issues and then uh, you've, of course, got the, the, the little picture issues too of what's happening with companies um, uh, and their various positions. Liv, we're going to jump into questions a bit early today because we've, we've asked for and received some great super questions, which I am going to make you do all the work here and uh, answer. Um, so let, let's jump into that. And the first question comes from Luke, uh, who says, my question relates to investing outside of super now and what happens at the preservation age. I'm 43. Hey, like me. I'm debt free, have a two million, have two million in ETFs and 800,000 in super. Uh, that's not like me. I maxed out super contributions every year and invest in the balance in ETFs. By the time I get to traditional retirement age, I'll have a healthy super balance, but my ETFs will be more significant. 
How does investments outside of super affect super withdrawals and tax implications after retirement? Right. So, Luke, the good news is that your personal investment holdings actually have no bearing on your super withdrawals once you've reached retirement age. Mm. Uh, As you can access your super without restriction, generally the only time your personal income or investments are going to be considered is if you're contributing to super um, by way of a concessional contribution on your personal incomes above 250000 or if you're in receipt of Centrelink benefits where you're required to meet an asset test, which sounds like you're not going to be. So uh, I would say well done. Keep up the good work. You're doing an awesome job. Yeah, absolutely. What an awesome job. Two million in ETFs already. You're well on the way, Luke. I think you're going to have a very happy retirement when it finally comes. Um Meredith has a question, which I think we've touched on this in our opening, Liv. Uh, Can my husband contribute to my superannuation fund? I'm under 65. He is over 75 and working, therefore can no longer contribute to his superannuation fund. How how does Meredith and her husband play this one, Liv? Okay, so because her husband's 75, he's only got 28 days after the end of the month in which he turns 75 to make contributions such as spouse contributions. However, he is in a position where they could consider, if she's eligible, withdrawing lump sums from his super account and then contributing it back um, into Meredith's. But essentially he can't make direct contributions to her fund uh, unless it's within that 28-day period. Right, which which may well have passed. So Correct. otherwise it's that balance equalisation idea that they'll, they could consider. Yes, correct. Yeah, Okay. Great. Warren asks, I've been looking after our SMSF for the past three years uh, and have found it to be somewhat of a nightmare in the past two and a half years, to say the least. Between the stress of running a business and my wife being diagnosed with cancer, I've become a very overwhelmed by it all. Sorry to hear that, Warren. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm considering uploading, unloading this burden by looking at going to an investment advisor. Problem is, how do you know if they're any good? and represent value for money by choosing well-deserved areas of investment on your behalf. If you are looking at doing business with me, you can check us out on Google or or product review. And so prior to engaging with us, but the financial advice industry seems to have little or no such way of how people have, of seeing how people have found them and with their service and performance. Would appreciate your feedback and advice here as it's a very gray area to say the least. It's a good point, Olivia. I mean, is this one where you, you know, it, it's best to get a recommendation from someone you trust? Yeah, look, I can typically say probably 95% of our new clients come from word of mouth and it's yeah. and it's people talking about their advisors and the fact that they're doing a good job. But the problem that we've got at the moment is that uh, when we've seen the introduction of Fassier and new rules on the industry, and we've seen we've had a mass exodus of about forty six percent of advisors. Mm. So not only is it hard to find good advisors, advisors are generally scarce uh, in general. So I would say the best way to find a good advisor is by word of mouth um, or through your network. So for example, Alan often refers people through to me at Prime Financial Group. Uh, we're an ASX listed wealth management and advisory firm, and I'm happy to chat if you'd like to contact me. Yeah, yeah. W- worth still the, the the old sort of networking points live of, of um, you know, your accountant or your lawyer or someone like that who, who you've been able to build up a relationship, finding out who they're, that they might have a relationship with? Yep, 100%. Or friends and colleagues. Yep, yep. 
very good. All right, Mark asks, when your SMSF is approaching the time when you're going to be drawing a pension from it, what are the kinds of things you should be doing in terms of asset allocation, percentage of cash on hand, dividend yields, etc.? What are your suggestions to put the fund on a sound basis going forward? Yeah, which is an awesome question, Mark, but the problem is that there's no one-size-fits-all approach that we could take to manage your income stream phase and benefits. So some clients may feel the need to increase their holdings in defensive assets such as cash and other interest-bearing investments. However, many actually just stick with their established strategy. So the asset allocation and the investment selection really needs to be determined, I think, with a financial advisor who can tailor the solutions to your needs. But it's a matter of just reviewing your circumstances annually or more frequently if something changes to to make sure that your strategy continues to meet your needs. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's hard live, you know, without knowing what needs Mark's going to have in retirement too, you know. Is he going to need, you know, a lot of money to do X and Y holidays or renovations or whatever it is. It, it, Correct. That, that, it, it's that end of the of, of the pie that you of the of the game that you've got to think about as well as the investment end. Correct. And look, some people at that stage in life have a lot of cash outside of super, so they don't want to draw down anything from their super fund. So they're happy to continue with sort of growth assets. So every different situation we look at is unique. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, Jason's uh, asked, asked Liv, please explain the difference between using individual and corporate trustee for an SMSF. Okay, so for anyone who doesn't understand those terms, this relates to the structure that oversees a self-managed super fund. So individual trustees are essentially where two people act in their own capacity compared to a corporate trustee structure where individuals act as directors of the company. So the only real benefit of an individual trustee structure is that there's no ASIC fees, uh, no setup costs for the company, and the ongoing admin requirements are slightly left, but uh, slightly less, I should say. But if an individual trustee is removed for whatever reason and another added, you must change the titles on the SMSF assets, which can be costly and time-consuming. Uh, so even many financial in- institutions will charge a fee for a title change. But probably the most in- unique difference is that if super laws are breached and an administrative penalty is actually levied on the fund, it's levied on each individual trustee. So that amount could be anywhere up to, if you've got four trustees, say $8,800. Whereas if you have a corporate trustee, you can have a fund with only one member, so that's a key benefit. But directors of corporate trustees need to have a director identification number, so that's an additional requirement but easy to get. ASIC charges a fee to register a corporate trustee the first time. But going in the longer term, recording and registering assets is far simpler, particularly if there's a change in the members in the fund. So say you've got Bitcoin, you've made um, a squillion over a 20-year period (laughs) and one member departs the fund. You can actually continue to maintain the Bitcoin. You don't have to sell it when there's a change of member, whereas if it's held in individual names and you Mm. need to change the names who holds the Bitcoin, then there's you're going to have to realise that capital gain. So if you're thinking long term um, over the, the course of your, of your fund's existence, the corporate trustee structure is favoured by advisors every time. Yeah, okay. And that's a very technical term, the squillion live. That's a... Um, yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I love it. No, I love it. <laughs> that's great. All right. Uh, Nit. Nit has got a couple of questions here. Uh, Question one is about franking credits in SMSF versus an industry super fund. 
for simplicity, take a super balance of a million dollars, which is in, uh, invested in ASX ETF with a dividend uh, reinvestment option with a return of, say, 10% and a dividend yield of 5%. So 50,000 dividend uh, every year with 40,000 franken credit attached to it. So the franken credit is equivalent to about 20 grand. If I've invested this money via an industry super fund like Australian Super or whatever, this franking credit of each member is collected at the fund level and is shared. They might be doing provisioning of it for withdrawal of funds by various members. I don't know how it is being accounting for. It might be included in the fund's return, but so far I've not found any funds whose return is much higher than the ASX 200 benchmark. If I invest as an SMS, if SMSF, this franking credit is mine and not being shared with another member of the SMSF. At least I can see its accounting. If someone is a passive investor and has another uh, 20 to 25 years for money to compound and set up a diversified passive ETF portfolio, in that case also, alone this franking credit advantage would outweigh the cost of running an SMSF, i.e. approximate cost of running an SMSF is say $3,000. Someone has a balance of 250,000 K, then also attached franking credit is $5,000 AUD. All right, I'm getting a bit confused here, but uh, the question is, has he has Nick missed anything? In his SMSF, he's not buying and selling and uncomfortable, and he's comfortable with a market return of 100% fund, uh, market return and 100% of funds invested in domestic international ETFs with a dividend reinvestment program and with a 20-year time horizon. So the question Nit's trying to ask there is, has he missed out on the franking credits? Yes. Um, and look, the way that industry and retail super funds deal with franking credits is by providing members with a tax credit for their proportion um, to the underlying investment in franked Australian shares. Now, the rules around super fund accounting and reporting are actually very strict. So I, I can guarantee you nobody's missing out. The problem is there's just no transparency. And that's what advisors find very frustrating when looking at member statements for um, APRA funds is that you just don't know what's compri- what they're comprised of. There's, there's just no transparency there. But look, the SMSF is one super vehicle that does offer that transparency. Um, so you can actually see it. But when you're comparing the performance of different super funds, it's also really important to compare apples with apples. So some industry funds offer a range of investment options, including diversified pooled options, asset class specific options. And then there's even trading platforms that allow you to buy direct Australian shares if you want. So comparing the average return of the ASX 200 to an industry diversified pooled growth option, for example, wouldn't be right because they're only investing a portion of their portfolio in Australian shares, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. Um, Liv, one from Craig, uh, and he's with the caveat we always give that any advice is general in nature. He's about to receive 500000 from an investment property sale. He's in his early 60s, he owns his own home, and all the kids have left, and he's got no debt, and he's still working. Good job, Craig. But he's probably one of the worst investors of all times. If you want a share price to tank, just get me to buy some. Lark was my last mild disaster. Lark, the whiskey company, which went, uh, has uh, had some management issues and has had a tough few years. So Craig's question is, if you, if it were you, where would you look to invest 500000 in today's markets and funds? Liv, perhaps uh, we should think here, what are Craig's, does Craig have any um options when it comes to super in terms of investing this? Yeah, 
Absolutely. So, Craig, if you were getting, it's likely, I should say, if you were getting personalised advice, that you would be advised to put that money into super for the tax minimisation strategies that super will provide you. But first thing I would do is to try to get uh, into your MyGov account. Check if you've got any eligibility to use any bring forward concessional contributions. So you're actually in a position if you do that you can claim a tax deduction for any contributions that you make to super that are concessional, which will help you offset the capital gain you're going to be taxed on for the sale of your property. So from there, if you haven't made any non-concessional contributions this year, you're able to utilise the bring forward rule and contribute $330,000 in one go, provided you've got less than $1.4 million in super at present. So if you have a spouse, you could also consider the same strategy I've just outlined above for her. But look, let's talk about some generic investments. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment at Prime is anywhere from 20 to 25% per annum return profiles for ordinary equity property development deals. We're seeing 8 to 12% per annum for first and second mortgage land and property development deals. Uh, we're seeing 15% per annum targeted returns for a specialist hybrid credit fund who lends money through first ranking loans and acquires warrants, which can be converted into underlying equity. But having said that, they're alternative investments and generally the higher the return, the higher the risk. So in all honesty, a risk assessment really is quite vital uh, if you're going to obtain personal financial advice. But I'm saying if you're not doing a good job of it, it's probably worthwhile paying someone to do it for you. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. And uh, Craig, if I can offer you some general advice, um, given your history, don't just plonk it all in one stock. (laughs) Uh, And if you do, tell us which one you do because we'll all want to sell out of that based on your your record. All right. Liv, we're going to go to some more uh, um, uh, generalised questions. We're going to go for one uh, down here from Matt who says, refers to a uh, discussion last, um, actually, sorry, I'm going to go for one from Rowan, which I I think is in your ballpark, Liv. Uh, Last week, the the issue of Telstra um, donating the remaining dollars and cents left over from a reinvestment plan to charity was raised. and we have had a few readers sort of point out that, look, it's only a couple of bucks, what's the harm? But Rowan raises the point um, that he found out that it, this got him into a bit of trouble because he was criticised by his SMSF auditor for allowing to the super fund, his SMSF, to make a donation to charity, which SMSFs are not allowed to do. Uh, specifically, the advice was there's also an issue with the Telstra reinvestment plan that you'll need to address with the register on each dividend, um, you know, so so this was he, he got in trouble with his auditor essentially. Um, he, he was able to uh, get in touch with the um, portfolio manager, but it was all pretty hard. And in, in the end, he, he uh, sold out a Telstra and bought into something else. Um, is this a little trap for for, for young players? Uh, yeah, Liv? But- it, it looks like a sort of nice idea from Telstra that's um, caused an unintended consequence. Yeah, look, and it is a nice idea. I think, to be honest, any normal auditor would take a a pragmatic approach and go that 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 amount is actually um, immaterial, minor and immaterial. So I I wouldn't allow an auditor's opinion to necessarily sway my investment decisions. 
um, okay. in this yeah. in this event is my is right. my re- response. So you're unlikely to get the uh, the ATO or, or, or no. ASIC raining down on your uh, doorstep at at dawn over this one. Absolutely unlikely. Yep. Okay, Liv, could you pick up the next question there from Matt? Okay, so Matt's question is: Nationalising Transurban is the worst idea since JFK said, "Let's go down to Dallas." There's no, there's no justification for making states that haven't sold souls to toll roads pay for the sins of the states that have. It's a bit like whinging about the price of gas, something that a reservation policy would have to deal with. The East Coast already gets a disproportionate amount of WA's GST and to suggest that it needs more propping up is nonsensical. Go, Matt. Agree with printing our way out climate change? Have a question. Can you comment on the likelihood wisdom of the new feds cancelling the next round of tax cuts for top earners but expanding the ability to build wealth in super funds through increased caps and reducing the need for long-term aged welfare reliance? Okay, well... (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for the question, Matt. And I'll have a go at the first bit. Um, I don't think there's any uh, likelihood of um, the Feds cancelling the next round of tax cuts for top earners, despite there being plenty of wisdom in it. I, I think Albanese has uh, sort of painted himself into a corner on this one, while his treasurer, Jim Chalmers, would probably not mind if the uh, that those third-stage tax cuts were wound back or abandoned. Um, Albanese has gone to the election with that promise and I, I just don't see a way for him to renege on that promise and without damaging his credibility in a way that um, he, he probably doesn't want to. Um, to, Nat, to Matt's point, though, uh, the, the, the probably wouldn't be the worst idea to cancel those. But j- just to the second part there, Liv, what, what, what do you, what, what do you um, make of the... Uh, expanding the ability to build wealth in super funds through increased caps. Uh, Would that be an idea that would have your support? Yeah, 100%. And, look, I think there's a good chance that they may uh, purely to reduce the reliance on the government uh, for, you know, pensions in the future. So, yeah, it will be very interesting to watch this space, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll take our last question from Kent who ha- who asks, arguably famous for being successful in predicting bubbles and crashes, the likes of Michael Burry, Ray Dalio uh, and Jeremy Grantham are all talking about somewhat of a mother of all stock crashes coming and possibly already starting due to data that has happened in the 70s, 30s and the GFC, you know, the worst market start in history, inflation, interest rates, yield curves, printing money, war, asset bubbles, all that sort of stuff. We'd be great to hear your thoughts on this without you spooking the market into happening and how you're preparing for this possibility. Um, Liv, do, do, you, do, do, you, uh, do you spend a lot of time thinking about bubbles and super bubbles? I try not to. How about you? <laughs> um, well, you do. Yeah, I, I spend a bit of time writing about them and uh, I, I, I did write about uh, Jeremy Grantham's uh, call the other day that there's a, a super bubble. I, I think... I think it's less less interesting to me is this idea that, you know, whether we're in the middle of a bubble or whether a bubble's about to burst, uh, I, I think that's really hard to do and, and we don't know that, what a bubble, if a bubble's burst until it's actually happened. So I'm wary about getting too excited about that. What, what's more interesting about what, what Jeremy was saying was that there's a sort of confluence of short-term problems and long-term problems all colliding at the same time. So you've got short term, we've got inflation and rising interest rates. Um, 
uh, and, and um, you know, some geopolitical issues, particularly with the war in Ukraine. Energy, it's obviously going to be a really difficult northern hemisphere winter in terms of energy supply. And then you've got these longer-term issues like uh, population growth is pretty weak. Uh, climate change and energy transition are obviously becoming more and more urgent as we see these natural disasters. Food production is becoming more difficult, partly because of climate change, partly because of energy, partly because of population. So where I think where I think this is interesting is that investors have got a lot of, you know, there's always something to be worried about, but at the moment we've got this collision of short-term issues uh, that we need to worry about and, and these long, slow burn issues all starting to become a lot more urgent at the same time. So what does that mean for stocks? I have absolutely no idea and neither does Jeremy and neither does anyone else. But I, I think what it means is investors need to have a sort of, you know, a, a bit of a four-wheel drive mentality to their portfolio. You need to be able to build it so you can navigate lots of different bumps and lots of different terrains um, over the next few years. I, I think it's, um, but, but you know, as I'm sure Liv would agree, that that's what you need to be doing anyway as a long-term investor, having a portfolio that can ride out the, the, the good and the bad. Would you agree there, Liv? Entirely agree, yes. Yeah, yeah. All right. Olivia, thank you so much. It's, it's been a fantastic uh, f- fantastic to have you along and, and the depth of knowledge and expertise uh, I, I'm awestruck by. So, um uh, we, we, we've 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 heard of you uh, on this podcast a lot and it's great to hear ha- have you here today so thanks yeah, so lovely much lovely to chat you're welcome well yes thanks for listening for today's episode of the money cafe Stephen Maine will be back with a governance special next week so send in your questions to the money cafe at eurekareport.com.au and until next time I'm James Thompson Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review And I've been Olivia Long, Managing Director of SMSF at Prime Financial Group and Eureka Reports SMSF Coach. And I'll just remind you, today's answers have been general advice only. Well said, Liv, and thanks thanks so much for being along again. We'll talk to you soon. 